You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to our website where you can read our articles, follow us on social media, or come and join us at one of our live events. In this podcast, we speak with Major General Bill Wright, the Military Secretary for the Army, and Brigadier James Cook, Head of Programme Castle. We discuss all things career and talent management, from changing the way job specs are written to overinflation of grades and cap badges versus head of professions. General Bill, Brigadier James, good morning. Thank you both for agreeing to be on our podcast today. Let's start with updates, I suppose, from both APC and from Castle. So, you, General. What's going on at APC at the minute? So, APC is going through a huge transformation process. And I guess it started about three years ago, pre-COVID, and there was talk about the digitization of, of records, which then, of course, had to be accelerated like most things as we went through COVID, and we had to go to full remote boarding and all of that. So that was a uh, massive increase in speed of the digitization, right, the turning of the, the paper into, uh, into digitized product. We're now into the digitalization of our processes. And you wouldn't believe the number of processes there are. If you imagine all the different terms and conditions of service, all the different ranks, all the complexity of, of career management across an organization like ours. So we are going through those processes, working out whether they are still fit for purpose, how could be done more efficiently. So we've got data analysts and all those sorts of things working on them and then streamlining them. Linked to that, of course, we've got an organization that was analog, is now becoming digital. The organizational structure that we are in as we change those processes aren't right. So we've got uh, a significant organizational uh, design review going on. We're about three months into it. Starts in earnest again next week. So structure, internal process. And then, of course, we've got a few simple changes like future soldier coming in, changing the shape of the army, how we adapt to that. And then, of course, castle, which we're going to talk about today. So all of these come together with an aiming point of 2025, because we can kind of get our heads around what the world will look like in 2025. That's for this year, huge change. Next year, we start to implement, and there will still be lots of digitization going on, but the proper, if you like, the tsunami of change is over the next, over the next year. Could you give us an example of what some of that change might look like for a, for a soldier or for an officer in the short term? A couple of examples in, in simple things for those who apply for things like CEA and those endless process which has to be sent off so so signed off by so and so printed off signed faxed back again anyone ever has a fax all those kind of things the touch points in that are massively reduced so it's a much much simpler process for the individual but in all the bits behind with jpa but also the career managers are not spending their time going back through records it's a much much simpler process can be approved quicker less effort easy to audit Uh, and that's a, a simple example assignment order process we're looking at um, how you minimize the delay between someone being told they've posted and the arrival of the assignment order. And again, if we can digitalize that process, reduce the touch points, it then allows people to look at schooling quicker, to apply for housing quicker, all of those things. And we've already done a lot of it. We'll see a lot more of that coming in over, say, over the next year. Brigadier James. Well, thank you. So right now, Castle is in the middle of delivering the Army Talent Framework. So people listening to this podcast today have probably already started writing their job specs and, and their skills profile, bringing in the knowledge, skills, experience, and behaviors of the 420 defenses agreed exist, and then bringing them down onto what they do and who they are. Uh, and that's happening right now. It's been a long time coming, but we're in the throes of it. And that'll be finished by the end of the autumn, the beginning of winter. And at the end of that, of course, the army will know exactly what everybody can do and how well they can do it and what the requirements of every appointment in the army are from junior soldier up to major general. That is the, the fulcrum or the, the bedrock of the program. So that is big business for this year and the whole of the army will be engaged and we started. Alongside that, we've got some good policy challenges coming up in the officer career framework, which replaced the single officer term of service work. That's hand in hand with the military secretary's team and that's looking at length of service, length of tour, how you move through a career. And within that also, there's the pathways work. For officers, officers often base their potential career on the rock model. 
which actually was a review of officer career courses, not a career progression, but people confused it by going, well, that's how my career works. No, no, that's how your education works. And we're splitting that into three different types of career for officers and three for soldiers to sort of demonstrate how that pathway works for everyone. And you'll be able to identify with one of those or maybe two. And, and they're not exclusive, you can move. And it'll just show a more realistic understanding of how you get from junior to senior as a soldier or officer. And that'll be out later that year. And that leans into the length of service and the work on how we should employ specialists who are true specialists. And by the end of this year, I think we'll have delivered that via the PPO committee and probably ECAB. So there'll be a slightly revised offer to come in in the future, not right now, 24, as the military section is probably for 25. So there's just a bit more differentiation between how our soldiers and officers serve, which reflects actually what they do. And then, of course, underneath all of that is a continuous development of the career management portal with the APPC uh, and the team so that we can do more on our personal phones to not only see your career, but look at what your career could be and engage with it. And I think what's really important there is that is you can take that information on your phone at home with whatever your domestic circumstances and make those decisions with people you care about and they can be part. And, and whilst you don't make a choice, it allows them to understand the context within the choices you're going to be asked to make. I think that's really powerful. I think it's really good that we've got that onto our soldiers' phones now. And many, many of our people are engaging with them continuously. I think if I on CM Portal, I mean, it's a, it's a real game changer. It's a game changer for how you run boards and how you do such. It removes a ton of process, makes the board members' lives a hell of a lot easier, which enables them to spend more time then selecting the right people rather than going through endless forms, etc. But I just reflect how far ahead we are in defence. Uh, about six months ago, the new CDP, Corey took over, sort of gave his vision of how we should be doing HR in the future. And one of his first bullets was everyone should have access to their career information, you know, on a handheld device of their choosing. And to be honest, I go, well, we, we, can, we can do that already. We are really far ahead of the defence vision of things. Like it's a real game changer for our people. I, I, st I suppose you still acknowledge there's still... Uh, a way to go, though, with, with much of the deliverance not being until 2025. The, 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 this is a, these things take time, but it's the fact that those we're doing it and we're bringing it in now, and all this change will be iterative because we bring stuff in, and however much you plan it, it never quite works the way you want it to. And it, even if it works for 98%, there'll be the 2% where it doesn't quite fit. So the CM Portal team are constantly changing and adapting as users feed in but say this didn't work for me this bit didn't you know didn't happen they are constantly adapting it that that's going to go on for we'll never finish but the big change is going to take a couple of years Brilliant. if i could just take you back to the one thing you said about um job specs uh, and that people are rewriting them to be based around the skills profile who is writing those job specs that's a great question so the castle team have given what we've designed generic world specs. So let's take company sergeant major. When you look at what that appointment is across every cat badge in the army, approximately 70% is the same, regardless of what cat badge you are. So we've written the generic one. So when you are the company sergeant major at A squadron or B company or D battery, you start from the generic. And you go, yeah, I do that, I do that, I do that. And then what you do is you drag down from the bank of 420, what are the things that I do that make me different to them? And that's what you do. So every sergeant major, for instance, has probably got to do about 20% to make their job spec for them. And then across that whole regiment, they're probably all broadly the same, but, but one sergeant major might be just like slightly different. So they can make it just a little bit more individual. And the program castle team have done that for the army, generically. So every adjutant broadly the same, every sergeant major, every junior rifle holder is broadly the same. And the team have done that work. So what you have to do is make it specific to you. It is not a burden. I should also say there are some singleton posts who do a singleton thing. No, we haven't done that. But the vast bulk of the army, we've done the hard work. How, how do you stop people writing a job spec that makes them the best person in the army? Well, do you know what? In many respects, I don't want them to, because I want them to feel that they are. But to make it coherent across the army, once that's written, their chain of command have to agree it. The castle team have oversight to make sure that Battalion A and Battalion B are comparable. The regimental corps colonels have a view of this as well. So there's plenty of governance. And to be honest, it's a really good point. 
Getting our people to generate their job specs, not difficult. The tech is really smart. Keeping it coherent, that's where we're working the hardest to make sure that this sniper doesn't write something that means they are amazing compared with that sniper. No, no, the skills we require from both of them should be comparable. But one might be parachute trained and one might be commando trained, and that's an obviously good difference. So, so it's a really good point, but we've got that covered. But I'm also sort of cheekily quite happy that people are thinking like that because I want them to aspire to be awesome. So to come to about job space, it's that there is a perennial problem uh, there and an opportunity. One of them is at the end of your tour and you're asked to review your job spec, you review it through the eyes of someone who's been in the job for two or three years and you go, well, I'm amazing. You must be capable of doing all these amazing things that I can do. We need to get better about entry. What is the entry level for the job and what is the exit level? Which comes on to skills and then say, come in at level three, but you're going to exit at level four in these particular skills, as long as you do your job well. That's a real opportunity. The other opportunity is to get the extra bit in job specs about the job. So suitable for place we're working, suitable for hybrid working. All of those things, particularly at the staff, it's not all at the staff, but that's where it really is the big numbers. We have been getting there, but we're not there completely across the army. And employers, not just the, you know, the job holder, thinking flexibly about how that job could be delivered. Um, will then start to enable us to put different people into different jobs and people to get a job that's a really good fit. Is that significantly different to the roles and responsibilities that already exist on, on JPA and the, the objectives, the smart objectives that we should be setting ourselves? Are we going to map those new job specs across so that they match on JPA? Real technical question there. So is if I start and hand over the work, the, the main difference is, is if we look at officer job specs, it might say something like, must have done this course must have been uh, on this operational tour. And now it talks about, must have the following knowledge, skills, experience that you might have got from that course, or you might have got from pre-military existence, or you might have got from night school. So it doesn't tell you where you have to get those skills from. Mm -hmm. So it talks about the skills are key. And of course, when we do our ICSC, that gives you many, many skills, but the ones for this job are just these. So it's, I think it's more specific, and that actually is easier than for the military secretary's team to go and find those in people who might not even know they've got those skills. So we have looked at the current, but we've also looked at what the organization formation needs to achieve, generic. We've looked across defense. Uh, I think we're going to make it far more intuitive and obvious, and, and actually in many ways easier to achieve. It works really well, of course, for reservists because they're not constrained by military skills. They can add what we might think of as civilian skill, and then it equates it, and that brings it in. And then the next step for that, we're not here yet, but the next step for that is to give equivalents. So, my civilian job is I'm a bricklayer, I add that, that's Royal Engineer combat skill, and all of a sudden the Royal Engineers can go, I will give that equivalent and I can give you that skill in the army. That's a huge step forward. And we have a lot of that, this is the way of bringing it. The rest of it, in terms of command status and essential desirables, has been brought across, but I think it's more nuanced and maybe I'll, I'll hand over. So skills and a better differentiation of the workforce and a better understanding of the exact job requirements, what, what's not to like. It's, it's just enhancing what we've, what we've got now. I said it's a really, really good, it's a really good thing. Some of the process bits, because you assume that all our data is in one place and it's easy. All our job specs are, of course, on JPA. They're not held in Word documents and other things. Tons are in Word documents and other bits. So actually part of this is the data cleansing, just to go, actually, all our job specs are held in one place. They've all been scrubbed. We now have a clean set of data to start from. And that actually is a really significant step, um, just in terms of process, version control, and making our lives easier as well. I wonder if I could take this one step further. So when we actually put out on our Twitter that we were um, speaking with both of you, we had more response from our followers than we did when we were interviewing the Minister for the Armed Forces. So people care about this. And some of the, some of the questions that they asked were quite emotive, very individual. But one question that got quite a few likes was, um, how can we still justify that the needs of the army come first? General, I don't know if you could offer an answer. Well, I think the answer is simple. We're, we're a business. Um, if you were to go to HSBC and say, without any exception, the needs of your employees come first over the needs of the business, they'd look at you like you were insane. We are here to deliver operational outputs for this country. That's why we get paid. Uh, it's not a voluntary organization, in which case the needs come, the needs can come first. It's the perverse bit. 
we're paid to do a job, we're motivated to do a job. That is the job that we do. That the skill is bringing those as close together as we possibly can and aligning them wherever we can, which is not always possible. And sometimes it's not possible because the needs of the army have to come first. And I was doing a lot with one just last week where that person was the only person with the qualifications in defense to do that thing. And that thing was an operational crime that had to be done. Look at how you can skin it in many, many different ways, that there's a simple answer. But it's also back to the individual having an honest conversation with their line manager and with their career manager. That's sort of three-way bit, be that the career manager in APC or their RCMO um, in, in units about what is realistic. Yeah. And also being really honest in their PPPs. We're getting better with PPPs. Uh, and I, as the parents champion and previously as the gender champion, I go to lots or hold lots of, I say coffee meetings, they're virtual, virtual coffee meetings with lots of syndicates and sub-syndicates and sub-networks. Most are getting better at being honest in their PPPs. But occasionally someone will say, I really could have done with being here, but I didn't. Did you put out a new PPP? No, it was embarrassing. I didn't want to put it in. If you don't tell the board where you want to go and what your requirements are, they cannot help you. And these are all, the boards are all people like you and I who want to do the best by our people and match these things together. And they spend inordinate amounts of time talking about childcare, commuting, sick parents, how could they make it work? Is it suitable for hybrid working? Huge amounts of time on individuals to try and match those two things together. But the individual has to get it on their PPP. They have to have had a realistic conversation with their career manager and their line manager. And ultimately, if we can't match it because it's the needs of the army, we need to explain that, but that's why we're paid but it doesn't come to that bit very often. I suppose I'd first say is, I don't think it's a win-lose situation. Uh, you know, it's not if the army comes first, I lose. No, you, I would reflect on my perfectly reasonable career that the two appointments that I wasn't expecting and hadn't foreseen turned out to probably be the two, most, two best opportunities of my career. I wouldn't be here without them. So it's not win-lose. It's often win, maybe not win quite as much, but still win. And as the military secretary said, we, we've got to get our people to engage with their careers via their PPP. The great thing about having an army talent framework that, def that defines you and the opportunities is you can probably then say, well, this is what I can do. There's all these other appointments I never thought I could, but I'm actually quite qualified for. You know, and, and the system will start to go, I know you're of this cat badge and your career is here, but these would allow you to do all these other things as well. And I think the system in the future will have that flexibility, maybe not constrained by cat badge in the way we are now, still to a degree, but not quite as much. And that just means there's more things to choose from that the system then can consider you for. It's not free choice. I think this framework will allow people just to have a little bit more understanding of where else they could go. But let's get back to the first point. I think, and I saw the questions, I just worry when people frame it as win-lose. No, no, win-win. Maybe it's not win in the same way. And, and if I give you perhaps a vignette, I'm very happy to take those individual cases afterwards and the team can, can, can have a look and, and can provide some, some feedback through you to, to them if that's helpful. There was, we became aware of a case about six months ago of an individual who was disgruntled that they didn't have a job to go to. They couldn't find a job because their serving spouse was going overseas. And they had opted on that, they'd been honest on their PPP and the individual had opted for a two-year career break to enable them to go with their spouse overseas. Which is there, the policies there all support it, they'd all signed up to it, but it wasn't what they wanted because they want to continue with their career. Having re-engaged with the career manager, knowing that they then weren't happy with the outcome of the board because they wanted to look at something else. There were no guarantees, it was a good enough answer. The team managed to find a hybrid working job for this individual who given where they are going without giving too much away, it is thousands of miles away. They will be hybrid working for two years, getting a report, doing the rest on a very different time zone, giving an output to the army. Now it's an extreme example, but where we know and we can find yeah, an amicable solution, we will absolutely find one or do our best to find one. Something that lots of people consider win-lose is promotion. And every year we find themselves disappointed. We can only promote so many people as it is. Bearing in mind, so what you said, General, what you said earlier about 
Does time-based promotion quotas really service the needs of the army? Are we getting the best people by changing who we promote based on how old they are? This has been going on, this question, since I joined. We were having exactly the same conversation. And as you're going up through your career, particularly junior rank, you think it's insane that there are all these old people at the top and you could do the job far better than them. And why aren't you promoting quickly? We have all been there. It's really complicated. And it's complicated for a number of reasons. First of all, we are career managing people for a career. We're not a job center. And when you speak to industry, they'll say, well, we've taken a risk. We've pulled this person in. They are, I don't know, 33, and we're going to make them the finance director of this company. Well, if it doesn't work, they sack them and they're gone. And also they'll do that job. And if they've got nowhere else to go after that, it's great. I'm not going to use you again. We're trying to nurture and develop the knowledge, skills, and experience of our people for their whole career. That's a very, very different proposition to, to being a job center. So that's sort of constraint one. Constraint two, and we were discussing this with ICC the other day, actually, is when you look at the star charts and you go, why haven't you just taken all the people on the left in the earliest possible opportunity and forget those old people who are ahead of them? You have a number of effects. First of all, you promote all of them, you completely disenfranchise all those people ahead. You then go right where well, I'm, never, I'm never going to promote, I'm going to leave. So you suddenly lose really good people with key skills who might be promoting slower because the career stream they've gone up, there are fewer opportunities, but by God, we need them. So anyone who is in the, I mean, if I talk about thirds, the middle of the, or the lower third are going to go. So that's a significant problem for the army. There's then the problem of cost. Because of the career, you promote all these people, they are all going to be lieutenant colonels, let's say, or above for the next 20 years. Well, in your whole cost envelope, you can't afford that strike. So as they come through, you cannot promote the same number of people going on behind. So you end up with this watch of people, unaffordable workforce going through. So both have profound effects either side of them. So the steps that we use are about creating enough opportunities, for the top chunk in that year with the right jobs, because of course what you don't want to do is make a top person in their rankings, SO3 drains somewhere, because that's the jobs available. You've got to have the right number of jobs coming up, right numbers of people, and tailoring that through the years. And that's succession planning. There's this balance between talent management, the individual, what skills that they got, and succession planning. Do you have the right people for the right jobs at the right time? And that's the trick in the process. Building on that and with another hat on, if I can give you a rugby analogy, English rugby analogy, my country, we don't see the precocious young 18-year-old playing international rugby. It's not because of how old they are, it's because of the experience they don't have. And I would reframe the question is, I don't think we necessarily have time-based promotion. We have, you need this amount of experience to be credible uh, in the next rank. And it's the same in rugby. You do see the Cipriani's or the Marcus Smith's play a few, but they don't establish themselves until having shown the skills at 18, 19, until they're 24, 25, because they need to put that experience before they're credible in that rank or starting in the England team. And if you're a front row, that won't happen until you're 28, 30. And if you're a fly half, it won't happen until you're 24, 25. And sort of in different parts of the army, we have different stages. But I, I think it's really hard when you're underneath that, but when you're above it, looking at it, it makes utter sense that our people of any rank need the experience to be credible. And quite frankly, like on the rugby to survive in that position. Because if you rock up with all the skills age 19, but you're frail and lack the understanding of what happens in the last dying minutes of a six-nation game, you will get smashed, literally, by a huge back row player because you don't know how it's going to work. And I, don't, I think it would be remiss of us to put our people in that position, metaphorically. So I absolutely agree with, with James. It's people quite often view, because it's a career, people quite often view it as being a race. And it's about, well, I'll say it's about momentum, it's not speed. It's building up this knowledge, skills, experience, and behaviors, because at each level, your leadership behaviors need to change because you are dealing with different organizations and at a different scale and different complexity. And building that up so that people hit promotion at the right time with the right skills to do as well as they possibly can in each job. And sometimes we get it wrong at all levels. We promote people, even on the current system, too early. And someone who should have been good does less well than you would expect. And at a more senior level, I sort of left 
full colonels and above are going to fight it out for defence jobs with the other service secretaries. It's really apparent that there's some people who move very, very fast. And when you get there and you're comparing books for high-level appointments, you can see a thin book. And it's all about promise. You know, this person could easily be a four-star general. They've got this. But when you go, where is the evidence that defence is going to get the right person for this job? It's just not there because they bounce through every single time. And almost inevitably, it's the person who's taken another couple of years, two, three, maybe four jobs, but they've got this experience that allows people to go, they're not going to let us down, it's them this time. The other one, go take another couple of years somewhere else. If I was a policeman and I wanted to be sat in the seat that you two are sat in now, I'd have sat several exams on promotion. Is there a reason that we don't examine people for promotion? So it's not a question I considered, so let me, let me give you a slightly off-the-cuff answer, but what are you assessing? So when you're a policeman, you're assessing law, process, in by and large, what is, I would say, a, 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 anyway, a single career stream. Because you're a policeman, you're a police person, you don't suddenly switch to become a firefighter or to become a doctor or to go and do all these other things. Whereas in the army, we expect you to leap around and do multiple things. As an officer, we want you for your knowledge, skills, experience, both your, those that have come up through your particular trade or profession and those that you have built in a particular career field. But we also want people who can network, innovate, growth mindset, deal with ambiguity, balance risk, and make decisions on 60, 70% of the information and do it well and do it quickly. Those are hard things to have exams on. What you get out of those is your everyday exam, your everyday test, which your line manager, your 1RO and your Toro see all the time. So actually you get a really tough assessment every single year in your report. And as long as they've got the evidence in it and the justification in it, those are effectively, I would argue, almost your yearly exam results. Because if you don't do well in a particular year, uh, it has an effect upon you. So I think we just, we just do it differently. And I'm not sure with an exam, and we do courses and bits to educate as we go through. I don't know what we test beyond what we do already. It's a bit of an, I mean, is it something that Castle has considered? So very much so. We had a, pro, a project called Individual Aptitude Testing that ran for three years within the programme uh, and had some good money put into it. And the idea was we were going to have some online sort of psychometric to look at your traits, uh, a bit of values, but your, your cognitive biases and what you're good and bad at. Uh, and we spent some good money on it and we had some good teams on it. And we went to industry and looked what they did, but we couldn't get the answers to correlate to military activity. So we could tell you who is intellectually gifted or who had a low emotional intelligence, or we could tell you who had good spatial awareness or who could recognize patterns. And we had some great metrics. We took a late entry cohort through it and an ICSE cohort through it. But then the greatest minds of that industry couldn't link it to military relevance. It was also had some really spurious results because we happened to take through three orthopedic surgeons, junior, but, but let's just generically say quite bright people who were rubbish at those tests, but intellectually had achieved already a long way. And when we looked at this, it was like, so that's not telling us anything. So the only thing it told us was people who couldn't re recognize patterns co coherently. So I think building what General Bill say is, it's easy to assess people, but I don't know what you do with the information. And hence why I think our current system is probably far more accurate and better and more relevant than we might think. Stand fast physical assessment and stand fast quantifiable things for engineering exams, uh, you know, and the things that have to be tested because there's an external organisation. But for, for officership, leadership and management, we tried and we couldn't. I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about the knowledge, skills, experience, behaviours aspect of it. And if under Castle there's now going to be a greater focus on the KSCB, how do we balance that with um, army quotas, so E1 liability? So I might be the best person in information operations, but my cap badge liability is so high that I'll never be able to exercise that talent. So I, I think the first part of this, before I hand across, is that we are moving to a, a way of looking at our workforce by profession, not cap badge. 
So if you, if you constrain yourself by cap badge, and cap badges are critical to our ethos because they're what you stand behind and fight and bond with, so no, no problem there. But if you look at people by what they do, profession, therefore devoid of cap badge, then that issue isn't a problem to a degree. We still need to have enough of you at every rank, but it's far less of a problem. And, and the executive committee of the army board have signed up to professions. They're being revised. General bill team are, are looking at how we get into that and how they work with career fields. And that's why professions work really well, which the rest of defense are doing in slightly different ways that they're doing, because then you're not necessarily constrained. The other thing about profession is then they will have a head of profession who mostly two stars, some one stars, who can look down into that team and go, I can see why I want to promote this person because within their cat badge, they haven't got what they need, but within the skills I need, they have. The example being the combat support corporal linguist who we want, who is a corporal, who we want as a sergeant, who at the moment has to go back to their corps to qualify as a sergeant, do two years as a sergeant before coming back to a linguist. Under professions, the head of profession, information intelligence, can promote her or him to sergeant through language skills. And that has been agreed. That's not a couple more years, but that is coming. I think that gets a long way to that problem, but, but not all the way. So again, it's a, I mean, it's a complicated issue. I don't, I think the, the vision James articulated is right. I don't think we'll get the whole way there because I think the reality is supply and demand are, are, are different. Specialists and the couple we've just spoken about and how we, how we make sure that those people who are proper specialists, we have this great bar of generalists and specialists. Actually, when I'm talking specialists, I'm talking about those, I think James saying it's four years to train or yeah, you know, cyber would be an example, a doctor would be an example. How we pull those people through and keep them in their specialism as much as possible. Acknowledging if you want to get to the top, you need to pull them out to give them wider business or, or defense experience. That's a relatively small group. We've got to get better at that, particularly in the cyber. We are, we are, we, and that's also a work sitting with DPERS. The problem with E1 and E2 is that, I mean, if you're in the REMI, I think 60% of the REMI cat badge are in the field army, mending warriors, tanks, vehicles, weapons, all the stuff that they do. We are not going to find on the skills database that suddenly there's a dental clerk or a, an infantry soldier who happens also to be a VM of a warrior, unless he's transferred out, in which case we know about them anyway. So. That demand in terms of delivering operational capability is, is not going to change it. The intelligence core and specialist signals, another example, demand far outstrips supply. So how we manage to break those people out is always going to be different. How do we get after it? We get after it with job specs and making sure that every job spec doesn't say must be in core. Could it be somebody else who has, and it won't be the sort of, if you like, the, the kind of the main line of the jobs, but there'll be jobs around it, which could be done by others. How do we get people in to go and do those things? How do we open those opportunities? Those niche skills that James has talked about. So it isn't going to make a seismic difference, but it has to make enough so that if you are the best information operations person, <laughs> we can exploit you and get you to, to the right job. In our future and our modeling, we've looked at another way of quantifying this. And instead of employment one, regimental duty, uh, cat badge tied, then employment two, any, we see, and this is not being confirmed yet, we see A, B, and C. A, B, category A being regimental duty, category B being what we'd now think E1, cat badge tied, and E, C being anyone. Because actually, as a military secretary said, there's, there's some things that at regimental duty, you can only be with that cat badge. So if you make it A, B, and C, that in itself, if you then divide the workforce up like that, you will provide more flexibility because I think there are still some appointments that are E1 today that don't have to be. And then the problem I think also is on that is, is if you want more flexibility, you've got to take it from somewhere else. It's not as, it is a zero sum game. So if we're going to take more ETS officers to go and be defense engagement people, then someone's got to backfill what is currently an education job. Therefore you've got to ask, are they all actually E1 ETS? That's the work. But thankfully, me being smug now, the Army Talent Framework will tell us how much they need to be cat badge aligned. Because if there's 12 schools with this job that's always been ETSE 1, and actually of the 12, only one of them is actually cat badge aligned, we might go, well, why, is it e why is it ETS? I think, for instance, Chief of Staff. Chief of Staff of a, a, uh, an engineer brigade. Let me pick on engineers. E1 job. Really? And I'm not picking on all engineers as a gunner, former gunner. But it's interesting. Those are the conversations we have to have in the future. But, but I will go back to what the military secretary said. There's probably not as much flexibility as we'd want, but I think there's a bit more.
And how do you see those profession managers rather than cap badge managers? Like what do our, our desk managers look like and how and what kind of conversations do you envisage to have between cap badges versus profession? So I don't know is the answer because there's a point to, to your career. So if I think in the officer space, rather than in the soldier space, unless you are one of that small group of people who we develop into a niche specialist, almost all of your career is done in what we currently call E1, probably until you are a cell major. And then you might go off as a W01. And then if you commission, then bets are off and you can go into other bits. But for the vast majority, that's your route. If you're an officer, you are by and large in your trade, you are post sort of subunit command level, then you're either going to go back to command something in E1 or you're going to be two or you're not going to command. But there's a, there's a kind of point there. And given the needs of the army, which we spoke about, which is getting people into units and delivering operational capability, that I think will be the, the, the major factor. How you then put, you know, currently as we do with career fields and professions over that, particularly above those ranks, and how you manage that within the APC. And so if you are the REMI career manager, but this person actually does a bit of REMI, but also wants to go and do a different profession, you've got another person over there. We haven't worked out how that linkage works yet and what it looks like, which is all part of the organizational design work we're doing. We've got to work it out. I just can't give you the, the answer yet. There's a really good idea of profession, so it has been agreed by, by ECAB. And as General Bill said, it, it's up to his team how we get to that. It has great utility and, and it will align us with defence. You know, the future role of career fields that may be subsumed or may be the horizontal line across the vertical professions. We've got to decide. And, and this, this is where it gets good. General Bill's team, my team, will work together to work out what's best for the army and defence. And hence why I think, don't think we should answer that right now. It will look good and it will look different. Let, let's see how it plays out. And, and let's, let's face it, we'll design it one way and it'll probably end up working slightly different, which will be better. And the guidance to my team is if you can't look in from the outside and understand who you as an employee or as a line manager in chain of command I need to talk to, then it doesn't work. I zoom in on professions and the, the infantry. Sorry to bore you with infantry chat. Obviously, as an infantry, as a paratrooper, I'm really interested in how those things align. And then I think contextually, you know, with a land war going on in Europe, we've had a whole bunch of you know, things with the original IR that have arguably been thrown out the window. But I'll get to my point in one second, honestly. I think we've had a refocus on the importance of armoured infantry and armour that we didn't think was important only a couple of years ago. And we've realised that it, it really is. The infantry has more than a few armoured infantry unit commanders who the first time they stepped into an armoured vehicle was when they took over unit command. Is that going to continue under professions? And is that right that we have that right now? So, so if I give you the, the structure, as it were, so in combat to profession, the first delineation of that profession is the two specialisations which are mounted and dismounted combat. That might naively sound like, sound like cavalry and infantry, it's not. Mounted combat is mounted whether you're in a tank or whether you're in a warrior. So there's all parts of combat in that. And dismounted probably hasn't got much cavalry in, but you see, so that, and that is the differentiation. So immediately you're putting the people in an armed vehicle in the same place, looked after by the same one star. That helps. Because then actually, I think if you're commanding a warrior and you know, understanding how to take that to an FUP, etc., whether it be an artillery one or an engineer one or an infantry one, there's common skills that help you sort of manage that. And, and no, there's more than just one cap, actually, for instance. So that's quite a good construct. And of course, we'll know which one you're in, because when you write your skills, it'll tell us which one you're in. The system will show you which one you sit in. Because many people go, well, I could be either. No, the system will show you where you sit. So I think that allows us to see truly what people do and the delineation between profession and then specialization and subspecialization, et cetera, et cetera, helps the military secretary's team understand who they can play with. I think that's, that's our part in the plan. So if we focus on unit command, which was, which was the specific question, if you're going to command a unit, it is far better that you have served in that type of unit for, to understand it. And armoured infantry is probably the most complicated. You still have problems with people done armoured infantry going to light wall infantry, particularly thinking that their people can cover 50 kilometres in one night, <laughs> it'll be fine. All those sorts of things. So, but but armoured infantry is probably the most complicated. And I have no doubt in my mind and, and experience having 
you know, if you've been a company commander in an armed military battle group, and then you want to go and be a commanding officer in an armed military battle group, the knowledge that you bring with you about how the whole thing fits together is really, really valuable. So in an ideal world, yeah, it's, an, it's, it's a no-brainer. Why, why would you not do that? The difficulty, of course, is that we're no longer the British Army on the Rhine, where we have thousands of people who've all been armed infantry company commanders, if I just stick with that example. In your armed infantry battle group, you've got four company commanders. Let's assume that two, on average, are likely to be of the quality to be regular commanding officers, but one might be also done SF. One might get injured. One might sign off. Other things occur in people's lives, which may mean that what you thought was two for one and it was all going to be fine, actually is zero for one. And then you're looking across the other regiments and trying to find, but they, of course, may be in the same position. So is it always perfect? No. But for me, the principle of the knowledge, skills, experience that you bring, there is a real logic in going, that's the way it works. It just doesn't always align like that. Um, so what we have to do is go for the best possible person that's adaptable, has got wide ranging experience, give them all the pre-training we can. Um, and then uh, and then put them in. I just feel like there's a bit of a danger with this that we're putting career and talent management ahead of managing operational effectiveness there. So I, I think it's within the structure we have at the minute, if you want to get an, or if you're very ambitious, you want to get a long way, unit command is on that route for you. And I think when people are being selected for those positions, that's, that's probably borne in mind by the board. They're not just selecting someone for a unit position because of their potential to command the unit, but then their potential to do other things later. And is there not a danger that we're skipping over people with deep armoured infantry experience or deep light roll infantry, or it might be the same in other parts of the army as well to broaden it out from the infantry, because they don't have necessarily the talents to command a brigade or reach, reach the dizzying heights of the top of the army, but we're missing out on people who might be very good at delivering the operational effects of that unit. So I'm not sure this is a professions thing. I think this is a, this is a succession planning mm. thing. And the answer is probably possibly. But of course, the pipeline doesn't end at unit command. No. And so forget going to be CGS or anything like that. You've also got brigade command appointments you need to build. And the same principle applies of the subunit commanders going up. Because we can't pull people in from the outside, no. you are dealing with a finite pool of people. So how you judge someone's talent and ability is going to be, because of the experience you'll get in that appointment, how can we reinvest it? And sometimes the answer, and we do this at every level, is we're just not going to, because they're not going to go further. They'll use that experience in a different way. They'll go to war depth. They'll go and maybe do an in, go and work with the, in NATO in an American Corps or whatever it happens to be. But you need to have enough where you're going, we're putting them in there, because actually we then have sufficient people in our pool to be the brigade commander in the future. And the brigade commander pool opens up, of course, because you can then look at other cap badges to, to come in. But you have to have this iron succession plan. Have you got enough four years down the line to do those roles, to do these roles? So it's a really tricky balance the board have to do. I would like to think we are not missing out on the high quality people. So the worst example would be you have someone with deep armoured of KSE, you put them into a light roll battalion and you put someone who is yeah, has no armoured infantry experience, but is a point ahead on the board and you put them in the armoured infantry battalion, that would not be a good outcome. But where there is a significant differential, then, and if I was in the unit, would I rather have a commanding officer I've got to build up and educate, or would I rather have a commanding officer who should not be in command? I know which one I would choose. We recently released an article, and in that article we talk about certain JSPs being quite long, one of which we recently found out CDS now has printed in his office and when someone comes in to talk about process, he waves this JSP in his, uh, in his face to show how crazy the army has become. What are your thoughts on the length of JSP 757? It's, it's quite long. As we've heard today, career management is quite complex. Mm. How do you expect our most junior soldiers to re-digest and understand that? So when you say, so I absolutely agree. Just to come back on your language there, when you say where the army's become, a JSP is a joint publication. No, no. Um, and CDS, I, I've heard CDS talk about it, and, he, and I haven't seen him wave the document. But he's talking about it. It's interesting, when you go back and say, right, change the process, and you'll say, change, come back to me, change the process. It's bloody hard to change. 
And even he will say, I tried to change X process and he didn't. Ask him about those blooming credit cards that we have, whatever their name is. EPCs. EP ask him about EPC cards. He bears the scars as the second PUS <laughs> of trying to deal with the policy around EPC cards. So to come back to your question, yeah, we've got too much, uh, way too much. So defence supported by the three services are going to rewrite 757 and are going to strip it out of a lot of unnecessary stuff. But the three services are different and we have different needs. So we're always going to need a single forces, single service supplement, which says, and for you, this is what it then looks like because the services do business in different, in different ways. Quite rightly, in most cases, we are dealing with scale and complexity that, that, the other two, that the other two aren't. So I was with my policy team the other day and they are going through every single policy and burning every single one that, that they can. I think there's a couple other bits, if I may. One is that policy is really important because you have to treat people fairly in a way they understand. You can't just wing it, but it's a guideline and a good policy always has flexibility within it to cater the chain. And sometimes I'm talking, I'm talking about the army as a whole and defense as a whole can go, no, the answer is this. I mean, if it's not quite written like that, our predecessors wrote a policy that has flexibility in it. It's a guide, except when you're dealing with money. And sometimes we're not very good at understanding that, that actually it's a guideline, it's, does, it's not a in the sand. You have to think about every case uh, and then work out where it's the policy. Do I expect individuals to read 757? No. So what my brilliant comms team is, the great Vanessa and her team are now looking at video clips. Simple, simple things, simple to understand. We do loads of webinars out there to explain to people, but by and large, what we're picking up is RCMOs and adjutants, commanding officers, APC ambassadors, all this are really, really helpful, but they're not. You're missing the really technical. You're, you're exactly that. You're missing that person. So what we are going to get to on the APC website is you can click there and it's got how to fill out your PPP, click. And on it, I'll have some links. If you want more, go to here. Good. But so that people can get it simply understood. It also means that individuals, when they are spammed on things mm -hmm. like NTOs, carders, to, you've got to give a talk about career management. Don't stand up and give a brief that is completely wrong. Because they can go and say, right, here's four video clips that actually explain to all of you how it works. Because one of the great problems is that people brief, tell their friends or tell this, well, this is how it works. And it's not how it works. So there's one version of the truth, easy to understand. If you want to read the whole document, you can. If not, here's a simple reference part. A, a second question on that is, um, you said it'll be hosted on the APC website. Is that something that people will be able to get through Defence Connect? It will, yeah, it has to be. They've got to be able to, if you can't get it on your mobile phone, then it's pointless, isn't it? So it'll all be official uh, and can go out there, stick it on YouTube if we need to. Um, none of it is secret. I mean, we'll just have chat GBT writing people those jobs. We, we, well, anyway. well there's a whole, there is a whole different question. <laughs> yes. Um, see, so on to, on to OJARs and SJARs, I suppose, as well. Um, is this, this is for both of you, General Brigadier, as well. To talk a little bit about culture, behaviours. So we've had in yeah, the last few years, we've, we've lost a fair few senior officers. We've also lost senior NCOs to cultural issues, brigade commanders being removed from post. We've got very senior officers in prison, I think, still for things like CEA fraud, those sorts of things. Those behaviours didn't, didn't just grow overnight in those individuals, you know, whether it's senior NCOs in Sandhurst doing things wrong there or people committing fraud. Those weren't picked up by our MS system. People weren't reported on in a way that allowed us to pick those things up, whether it's what some people might call toxic leadership, toxic behaviours, that sort of thing. How do we stop that from happening in future? There are two things. There's one, just again, serious of the question, what the media have written about people does not necessarily equate to the reality of the numbers of people and what they have been, particularly internal processes uh, and, all, uh, and all the rest. The picture is better than you would think, or better than the media would, would, would portray, but there are still numbers. And so your point still stands, it's just less than the front page of the paper would have you believe. I mean, I would imagine that you know, a similar size organisation would have much worse than we do, but oh, we hold ourselves to a higher standard. We, we, we absolutely do. I speak to friends of mine who work in compliance and others in banks, and it's very entertaining. But, we, but that's not getting away from the issue. At the start of it is more courage to write the right things in people's reports. And when you're giving them an empire, 
which you can do as many times as you want during the year, you have a bloody honest conversation. And when I reflect back on the worst of our leaders, for which there are very few, but they have a significant effect. We knew what they were like as majors, and we still continue to promote them. And those who weren't good at their jobs, but were toxic or exhibited bad behaviors, they're easily getting off. Because you just write them a report and they sort of leave or they disappear, and that's fine. It's the ones, to use that awful phrase, who get results. We institutionally have been really bad at because you have to write them a good report to say, oh, they've done really well at achieving all these things. You just don't talk about the way they've done it and the effect they've had on other people. And I get quite excited about that because it is a complete failure. We have to write on this report. CGS, previous CGS, but this CGS is a real driver for it. And we have lots of conversations about behaviours, or I do with them, is get it in the bloody report. Get it down that this person is not behaving the way you want them to. And get that marker in there. Do you make it a mandated marker? It is, it is mandated. CGS has mandated it. Not everybody is doing it. And in Field Army and others, they are now pulling up reporting officers who are not putting developmental lines into the reports. So we've got to get better at doing it. The, you then have, I'll leave James to talk about Oscar in a, in a, in a moment with, with, with the brigade commanders. But what Oscar has done... And in Oscar the, is the one-star. The one-star assessment before brigade command. What it's enabled us to do is have a conversation about behaviours. Because particularly at the senior level, everyone knows these individuals. It's harder when you're dealing with Corporal X or, you know, because of the, the sheer number. Uh, but people know them. And so CGS's view is that we should be taking a holistic view on fit. And that's both good and bad. Because when you look at the very senior level about where you're putting people, you're not sticking an individual, you're putting an individual into a team. So who are the other characters in that team? How, who are you putting in, not just with the KSE, but what B is going to complement that team and bring out the best in all the others? You have to have that conversation. That's not in the OGR, because you don't know where they're destined to and when. So there's a bit about fit, right person, right place. I think the 180s and the 360 degree assessments are helping because the very clever people are good at hiding their behaviours until they've done their two years posted and out, by then it's too late. So those things should be helping the 1ROs and 2ROs to understand better what is going on. And all the various support that are out there in the, in the behaviours teams and others, we need to use and flag up these behaviours. And quite often it just requires a tweak, particularly the more junior they are. It's the self-awareness of the problem. Yeah, some coaching, mentoring, get them in the right place, but make sure they bloom and do it and they change and audit and you can then correct. Those people who can't correct are the ones you want to get rid of. Castle was directed to look at this uh, 18 months ago uh, to look at behaviours and how we can assist with the military secretary's team. Before we get into the one-star command assessment that runs for its second time in a couple of weeks' time and then in May at the Academy of Sandhurst, we looked at, with some psychologists and anthropologists, why it's hard to get behaviours into reports. The military secretary's team have, have this. We've all seen this report. It's quite fascinating. And I'm not qualified to explain, but I'll give it a go. If you were to take emotional intelligence on a scale of 1 to 10, which you can't, but say you can, if I have an emotional intelligence level of 5, but you have an emotional intelligence of 9, I can't see it. I can only see to 5. If I am at an intellect level of 6, but you are of 8, I can't recognise it because I can only see to 6. Now, it's not that black and white. But that in itself, that theory, that sort of psychology theory, means it's really hard to recognise behaviours. The second thing we found is people knew that if they could put behaviours in an OJAR or an SJAR, that they could have a significant effect. And the reason they balked from that is they always wondered, were they qualified to make that assessment? Now, of course, as a leader, as a commander, you are. But when you're about to write something that could be constructed as, as significant, people were hesitant to go, am I really sure what I'm writing? Is that really qualified, is it something I've just seen, would everybody else share? And they've never felt comfortable asking other people about writing that point. So those things mean it's hard to get behaviours into reports, even though, as the military secretary said, they are mandated. And, and it's not just a CGS, they've always been part of a report, we just struggle. Consequently, Castle delivered last year and for the second time in a couple of weeks' time, the one-star command assessment. So those that the military secretary's team deem suitable to be considered for one-star command, not staff, go to the academy at Robson House and they have a day where they're put under some pressure. Prior to that, we get 25 people to give some multi-source assessment, 180, 360, who we pick, not 
candidate. They give us a rough order and then we go and pick to get gender and rank diversity. They do some psychometrics before they get there. Uh, and on the day, they have a very challenging interview with a psychologist and a military senior officer. But then the three things that really count is they go into three rooms on their junior officers, uh, mostly of the opposite gender, and they're asked to do a task that is challenging to them. And we see their behaviours under pressure when they know they're under pressure and we're watching their behaviours. And then we write a report. And that report goes to the military sector team, the number two board, and is extra evidence alongside their annual reports, the PPPs uh, and the rest of the process there, just to flesh out the behaviours. So the two board members, just for command, can have a more up-to-date view of those behaviours. And of course, they're written by clinical psychologists. They're qualified to make these assessments. And that's the bit that gets around the problem that we struggle to write it, but these people are qualified to write it. And I think that as just that, I don't know, 10%, 5% extra, that has that value. We're only in our second year. So I think we need to give the team time system, uh, the system time to get through. I'd also say, is, is that the right level? Is your my, my next question? I think it's a very good level to do it at. And being of that generation, I think it has changed. People know it's coming. We've spoken, sorry, we've spoken about poor behaviours. And I just reflect, we're an organisation that deals with people that's about leadership, sort of fundamentally based. How many, so it's a rhetorical question, how many mature conversations do we actually have with our line managers, particularly our because we can all improve. Everybody can improve. So in your empire, and your mandate for alignment development in your own job, have a conversation with you know what, you are brilliant at this, but to get you to the next level, actually, why don't you spend probably a bit more time networking or developing this skill or that skill or whatever it happens to be, you then take that through. It's a development point in your OJAR. You know, it's done really well, a bit more to go in this area to get them up to OF5 or OF6 levels, whatever it happens to be. What we then do is we leave our jobs and we turn up bright and shiny new in our next job and we leave our line manager to assess us in the start. Wouldn't it be a mature organisation if you turned up and you went, this is me, you know, this is me. What I can really do with your help over this bit is developing this particular area because I think that's the thing that's going to give me the edge. That's the thing individuals should be looking to do as well. Yeah. We should all be looking to, what are we good at? What are we, what do we all need to improve at? And take those lines when we're given them as something that we do take forward. Yeah. And we've all got blind spots. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got an imperfect leader, isn't it? Yeah, incomplete leader. Um, so I've, I've done two 360s in the last two years as part of the major program, Leadership Academy. Um, and the first time I got that 360 results, there were some charming comments, but there's some stuff that really punched me between the eyes. My regret is I didn't get that feedback earlier in my career, and I have tried desperately to address it. And I think I'm, my, my second set of feedback is, yeah, mostly. So work to do. But you're absolutely right. We should be more honest with ourselves. Maybe we should be challenged with that information. And I think this is gently changing our culture now. And I'm really happy to see it. Doesn't mean it's not harsh to receive, because you think you're amazing. It turns out not so much. But that then gets you closer. I wonder if I could get your thoughts on how far down the ranks you think 316 should begin. That, do you think it will stop this overinflation of being written up, the overinflation get upgrades that we see at lower ranks? Um, and, I, and, a, and a set of follow-on question would be, if we are focusing on this behaviours aspect, and particularly if we can't recognise certain behaviours in ourselves, wouldn't the army benefit from that army-wide like, mentoring programme, where when you get to a certain rank, you are either told you are going to be a mentor for someone, but throughout your whole career, you will always be a mentee. Can I answer the, the technical part of the question? I think, I think the military secretary might answer the second half, if I, if I may. That there's a lot of research on 360 reporting. There are many, many PhDs on it. It's easy to read. Broadly, when you ask someone what you think about someone else, it is as much reflection of the person you've asked as it is of the person they're speaking about. So the classic one is they're not a good communicator, which usually means you're not a very good listener. So, so we have to understand that context, and that's the, the greatest. Secondly, prone to bias. Uh, and mostly subconscious, unconscious, but there's lots and lots of bias in it. So my worry is that it goes down to the ranks where more people are answering more multi-source assessments on each other, it loses its value. Uh, and, and that's what academia tells us in, in any organization. So I think broadly where we're pitching it now is probably the optimum. There are other ways of finding Second opinions on people lower down. That's that's not Cook's opinion. That's that's what we've read when we've looked at it. So I th- I think we're all in the right place. Mentoring 
all day long, as long as I'm properly appropriately. The general staff team run that really, really well for a senior part of the army. I don't underestimate the resource to do it properly, because if you can do it, it, it's been like the military secretary said, if people give career advice that's not good advice, that's dangerous. If we can do mentoring well, you've got to do it really well. And it's not easy. I mean, it sounds dead easy, doesn't it? It's not. It's really hard to be objective and support people in a critical but compassionate way. I don't think it will help OPGs. I think that's a whole separate, a whole separate thing. It'd be really to do one of these with Commandant Santos, because I'll hear nice feedback. It's a lot. We had a long session yesterday on it about at the senior level, um, a proper program was you step up in the general staff where you're entering a coaching mentor. And I'm, like, I'm a highly qualified coaching mentor through the army. So I have a particular view on this, but I think there's a couple of things we get wrong. One, lots of the people who vote for what ask you coaching and mentoring are the kind of people who are pretty good anyway and are quite self-aware. Some of the people who don't ask for it are the ones who probably need it. Secondly, when you look at this with industry and the program, in industry, it's a three-legged stool, but it's the individual, it's the employee, the line manager, and it's the coach case. And the first conversation, is the one that we talked about with the empire or others saying actually there's an area that you need to develop, which is a good thing. You're going to do this and we're going to do some coaching with you. you know, or let's say mentoring in this case. Now there's a confidentiality agreement between the coach and the mentor and the individual. That's fine. But what we do is we completely miss out the line manager. So if I give you a simple example, I could be coaching you. I haven't had any input from the line manager. So you're just telling me what you think your problem it should have started with the line manager saying, look, these are the areas I think you'll be really good for development and here's some things I think. I work out the goals with you, it's my relationship with you. But when you say, actually, I need to get much better at doing the presentations. And we talk about that and I develop you. And you then say, my, my interim goal is this presentation to these following 50 people. It's a big thing. I build you up, you go and do it. You come back and go, I was amazing. It was brilliant. All those things you told me worked fantastically. I go take that goal achieved. Let's move on to your next objective. But if I spoke to your line manager, they might go, oh my God, it was awful. I have no way of knowing that because we've only got two legs of the stool. So we should be engaging the line manager more about what the requirement is. And then going back to the line manager and saying, look, these are the things you asked me to work on with. Are you happy that we're making sufficient progress? And they go, yes, fantastic. I didn't give them anything confidential. You discussed it up front, but that's where you make progress it is, by doing it, is by doing it like that. And I think rather than through the organization having an established coaching and mentoring thing, I think there are roles and ranks that we can absolutely do that. If you go back to your Whitmore coaching for high performance stuff, it's actually about having a coaching culture where you are having these conversations about performance and open conversations. And again, a vignette, before I flip back onto Santos, the great slate to make things that people were asked to do when I was running up Santos. It was always so-and-so didn't do this, so-and-so was brilliant at that. It was all done in isolation with people sat in their rooms, all quite tired, but then the exercise putting these things out. We got rid of it because it was utterly counterproductive. It was far better to sit them down together and go, right, let's have some feedback. And let's do it in a way that you are willing to talk about this thing. And then quite often you have some go, you didn't do that. And they go, well, the reason I didn't do that is actually that Smith had asked me to go and check the radio. That's why I wasn't there at that time. I go, oh, right, I didn't understand that. And you have a much better live 360, a mature developmental conversation than go up to your room and slate a mate. Even the name of it. I mean, it's awful, isn't it? It's absolutely awful. Cook it and get out of his sleeping bag quick enough. So yeah. Stag. Right. Yeah, all of that, yeah. probably. <laughs> is there anything that we didn't ask that you would have liked to have asked? This is your opportunity. So I'll start, if I may. If there's one thing I would like the cohort to do, that would be to engage with the opportunities that are coming in their way. And that's not new opportunities. I mean, as a former career manager, just want, I wanted the people to know there was a JSP 757. Not, not to read, just to know there was one. Because so many things go wrong when people just don't know what's out there. And if I have a worry, there is quite a lot of cost coming at people. And I really want to understand it's for their benefit and it's good. And we need them to do some work to do their job spec and role spec. But there's a huge benefit of doing that. So it's a demand. But my goodness, there's a reward at the end of that. Castle is finished at the end of next year. That's it. The castle will be complete, done, drawbridge up. There's not much more time uh, and there's still lots to do. Uh, and that's why we have to work, work so closely with the military sector's team to 
because they would be delivering most of those outputs. There's a little bit of thing of Castle left afterwards, a little bit. But we've got to work very, gen- very close with General Wilson to get that done. So, so please, read our newsletter. Follow me on Twitter if you have nothing else to do. Follow the Wavel Room on Twitter, more importantly. And, and then just keep up the conversation. So I would say don't be surprised by the changes coming at you. It's good news. So I'd, I'd re-emphasize that about I'm saying something. There's some great stuff coming. There is a lot of change. There's Castle today. There's Future Soldier. There's new career opportunities from the National Cyber Force to other things. Lots of structural change, all that sort of stuff going on. I would just commend people to take ownership of their careers. Do not leave it to chance. And that great MS triumvirate, speak to your line manager, and speak to your career manager about where you're best suited, what your best opportunities are, and where you want to go to have the fulfilling career, which might not be to be CGS. It might just be to stick at your current rank, but do something you love doing. Have those conversations and then get it on your PPP and apply the right jobs that are going to try and get you there. But if you don't have that three-way relationship going, then you're just leaving it to chance. And with that comes mostly disappointment. Don't do that. Take ownership. Thank you very much. General Peter, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to run. If you can spare some change, head to our website and donate today so we can keep bringing you the content we know you love. Thank you.